We're live. All right. This is uh, 20 questions with uh, me, Pastor Mike, trying to answer your guys' questions and give you the most biblical answer I can, which includes sometimes me saying that I just don't actually know. But the first question today is the topic of, do I go directly to be with God when I die? Will I see him immediately? Or is it some kind of like <clears throat> soul sleep? That's a phrase that people use. Is it like a soul sleep type of thing that goes on? Uh, well, let me say, I'm going to give a short answer to this question. It, it could use a large unpacking and a whole video, of course, but everything could. <laughs> so these are the short answers today. Um, the first thing to know is this, is that when, when the believer dies, that body that they die in will later be resurrected in some some miraculous fashion. God's going to resurrect that body, uh, not just bring it back to life, but but bring it back different, bring it back glorified, bring it back new. And so that will be our future resurrection. Now that's far in the distance. This question isn't about that future resurrection. Obviously we'll be with God in our new bodies at the, at the resurrection that happens way late in the eschatological scene. But the question is what happens now, right? Like what happens if I die right now? And for this, there's a couple different scriptures that I just want to bring in that will help us weigh in on this. There's the first one, which is that verse that's always quoted wrong. I mean, I quote it wrong too, but I do it on purpose. <laughs> you won't hear me doing that very often, uh, but I'll explain why, because I'm not actually quoting it. I'm not really quoting it at all. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing a teaching that's in the passage. The quote goes like this, absent from the body, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You may have heard that quote, and then you go to look at the passage and you go, wait a minute, it doesn't have that phrase in it. And it, that's true. It doesn't have that phrase in it, but let's look at what it does say. It says, uh, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, that's I'm alive in this physical body, we are away from the Lord, right? So I have God's presence with me by his spirit, but I don't have his presence in the ultimate sense that I will have in eternity. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul's idea here is that there are two options. We live in this flesh in which case we're not in God's direct full presence, boy, I would rather be in his full presence, right? Because there are these two options. There's, there's in the body, away from the Lord, or or out of the body and with the Lord. That would be, that would be the, the summary of to be absent from the body to die is to be present with the Lord. That's the idea there. Now, so it's not a quote to say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a summary of a, of a teaching that we get from this passage. But I do admit that I want more than that, right? Um, I feel like that does support, you know, the case that I'll go to be with God directly and immediately upon death. But I want something more. And we do have something more um, in several places. But in Philippians 1, 19 through 23, we in particular get teaching on this that I think helps us out. So Paul's talking to the Philippians. Now, Paul, as he writes the book of Philippians, quick context, He's in prison. He's, he's suffering for the gospel. They're praying for him to be delivered. And he's talking about whether he'll get delivered this time or he'll die this time. He thinks he'll be delivered. He thinks that he'll live on, but it wouldn't bother him that much if he got killed. And that's the context of this passage, Philippians 1.19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he talks about these two different issues of life and death, uh, getting killed right now or living on a few years longer and serving Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And that's his perspective. If I live on, I'm going to serve Jesus. And if I die, hallelujah, I receive, I receive his presence. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I can serve the Lord. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. Uh, you know, this is interesting because this is not, um, this is not Paul debating suicide. I actually heard someone suggest that Paul in this passage is debating whether he might kill himself or not. That's not what he means. He means that in his, and, and don't do that if that's you, if you think that. <laughs> there, are, there are biblical teachings we can bring into that topic, but let's not just abuse scripture here. What he's doing is he's saying, I, I look at you and I see the benefit I can have as I state around this world and I bless you, but I long for Christ. And I'm like, I'm of two minds here. I, I want to bless you, but I want to be with Jesus. That's all he's saying. He's saying both things are wonderful. Both things are desirous. So he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, it's fruitful labor, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul knew his calling. He knew his calling wasn't done. And so he knew that he was going to stick around because of my coming to you again. And then why do I relate this to the question of whether or not we will see God immediately upon death? And the answer is because his, his struggle between ministering to them and being with Christ only makes sense. It only makes sense if upon death, he would immediately be with Christ. If it was just like sleep, it doesn't matter. If it was like sleep in the sense of unconsciousness. Now, sometimes you're in sleep, you are aware. You are dreaming and you're aware of things and uh, time does seem to pass, and even though it's weird the way it, it happens as you're sleeping. But really what's going on here is Paul saying, look, I'm not just going to sleep and then not be aware of what goes on in this earth. And then eventually I'll be resurrected and in the future I'll be with Christ. He's thinking I'll immediately be with Jesus when I die. And that makes me want to be with him now. But I want to serve you. I want to bless you. And I, I think Paul is a model for us of a Christ-centered life. Where living on in the flesh, like some, some of you are like, Lord, don't take me yet because I'm not married. Don't take me yet because I haven't gone to Disney World or whatever it is that you haven't done that you think is so important. Paul when, he, when he's evaluating the benefits of heaven versus earth, he only thinks of being with Christ or blessing other believers. Like these are the two things, you know, serving Jesus here or being with Jesus there. Those are the priorities to him. That's a beautiful thing for us to keep in mind and to set our hearts towards. So yeah, what, what Paul says here doesn't make sense on soul sleep at all. When you die, you, if you are in Christ, you will immediately be in the presence of God. End of story. That's, <clears throat> that's what was going to happen with Paul. Now, there is a Roman Catholic view of this, which is you have to you have to say that only some people will immediately be with God because then a lot of people will go to purgatory. And so they look at Paul as like an exception. You know, Paul, well, maybe Paul knew he would be with the Lord, but we don't necessarily know. Um, and that, of course, is their reading their theology into the text. I think Paul here is an example of every Christian uh, washed by the blood of Christ and going to meet him immediately upon death. All right. Now, what I'm going to do is go to your guys' questions in the... Um, uh, in the live chat. So you're actually adding your questions right now and we're taking questions, but we're going to fill up real soon because that's just what happens on Fridays. I apologize for those who you've been trying to break through with a question and we're not able to get there. Um, it just has to do with there's a lot of you and there's one of me, you know, so we're doing our best to try to minister to people. And our first one is Emmanuel Rodriguez. <clears throat> and by the way, this is every Friday, every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. 
that's this this live stream. You can always catch it afterwards. And if you do catch it afterwards, usually we'll have timestamps in the video description and in the first pinned comment so that you can zoom your way around and find the questions that are the most important to you personally. Emmanuel Rodriguez says, hello, Pastor Mike. Oh, oh, and let me try this. I, I, I did this thing. Here, you guys, look. Eh? <laughs> I don't know if this is going to last, but I'm, I'm just, I just grabbed. Anyway, here's the question. Emmanuel Rodriguez, um, what do you think about pages like Memes for Jesus? Is it okay to make jokes with Bible stories or situations? Thanks. This is a tough question. I love humor. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know who doesn't. Very few people don't love humor. But humor also serves, while in one sense it can it can sort of bring down the tension uh, how dramatic an, a situation or event is when you can laugh at it. And this is what we see in 2020. 2020 is like meme is a meme generating year. And the reason for this is because when you can laugh about those things, it makes you feel like they're less problematic than they really are. It just makes you calm yourself down, maybe in a positive way, or maybe like a, like an ostrich with your head in the, in the sand way. It could be either one. The, the danger of memes about Jesus, the Lord Jesus right? The maker of heaven and earth, the judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, the one upon whom every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, is that he is glorious. And those memes can turn into mockery or making light of the, of the love, power, goodness, judgment, authority of, of who God is. And so that that can be dangerous. That can be dangerous for us, not for the Lord, but for us, for me, you know, if I'm making light of the goodness and wonder and uh, truth of God. So you, yeah, humor has its totally has its place, but we just need to be very careful about how we do it. We are dealing with something, something holy. When we touch the topic of God, when we touch the topic of the truth of Christ, the cross, I cringe sometimes when I hear even well-meaning Christians sometimes offer humorous like, okay, like, let me give you an example. Um, in scripture, um, Moses is is called to go up the mountain and down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, if you recall the story in Exodus. And I hear people joke as they're teaching on this topic about how Moses is like being yo-yo going up and down the mountain and about how Moses would sort of, the, what's implied is that he would rightly be irritated that God's asking him to go up and down again. Instead of asking the question, What's the theological reason for Moses going up and down the mountain? Which is probably to, to show the separation between God and the people. That's the big issue. The God's up here. You're there. Your sin is separating you from God. Even when he's up here getting the commands, you're rebelling against him. Go up and down, up and down. The, the idea is that God is separated. The solution's the tabernacle. The tabernacle where sacrifices take place so that God can dwell amongst a sinful people, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Moses goes up and down, this journey up and down, because ultimately God himself comes all the way down quite a journey in order to reach us and access us. You see, there's a deep theological thing going on here, but we make a joke about it and that's, um, it devalues it. So that's the first question. Um, Mariano Rogers has a question, says, uh, pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill, which view is the most correct? And here, um, I, okay, I, my personal opinion here. Because eschatology is something that is easy if you only read one opinion about it. 
and then and then it gets a lot more difficult if you start reading everybody else's opinions about it and then you go oh yeah and let me uh let me say this before i answer your question the the issue of eschatology um one of the reasons why i think this is a difficult topic is because we're dealing with prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled now when we're dealing with prophecy that has been fulfilled there's no question about the interpretation of it right when when jesus comes riding in on a donkey into jerusalem guess what we know that's quite literal look he did it we when we deal with prophecy that's been fulfilled there's very little debate to go on when we deal with prophecy that has yet to happen we're guessing what the real world look of these prophetic statements will be and that can be a place where a lot of conjecture lives and then it can become central to your theology as if whether god raptures somebody um pre-mill or uh, pre-trib mid-trib or something like that uh, that this is like the core of your theology the most important thing is whether you get raptured three and a half years earlier or later and i think that this is unwise i think it, it takes too strong of a pillar in our theology what we should do is trust the scriptures try to understand them at the best of our ability and then wait and see what god does um so but my view all that being said personally and i do want to do more study on this in the future um or maybe i'll just wait and see <laughs> um is that i'm i'm a pre-millennial so i do think there's a real thousand year millennium i think that it has not yet come and <clears throat> i think it will be preceded by those seven years of tribulation along with great tribulation the timing of the rapture i'm not quite sure on that's my opinion on the best view and uh, i'll just share it as it is brian harper says hi mike recently many people have been uploading videos of their prophetic dreams yes they have um, with many implying the rapture will be within the next couple months what do you make of these dreams well i want to be open to them brian but maybe like some of you you've been around for a little bit and you've seen this before i remember them predicting that the rapture was going to happen in 1999 and then it was going to happen in 2000 y2k and then it was 2001 because guess what we did the math wrong is 2001 and then it was going to be 2004 and then 2006 and then 2012 and it's going to be again here in 2020 and then guess what you're going to see this ramp up i will here's my prediction it's not a prophecy it's just i'm just i just know people when when we get to 2028 2030 2031 and 2032 maybe even 2033 those are going to be key dates where everyone's predicting the second coming of jesus because it's just 2000 years from the first coming of christ and the way we are we're just like look of course it, it's their symmetry there so that's when he's coming back i think that um i think that i take it all with a big grain of salt i think that no man knows the day or the hour and i take that really literally and so all these predictions about the day and the hour, especially with track records of people doing it in the past, <clears throat> I just take it with a huge grain of salt. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I, I admit my skepticism, not of the Lord, not of prophecy, but of people, but of people. And if you look at some of the stuff that you see online, you, you just realize that 2020 is a fantastic year for false prophets. Let me give you a, re a recount. I, I was following this because in January, December, January, there were some prophets that were on uh, some popular shows and they were saying the first four months of 2020 is going to be a really rough time for us. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, they said. And they mentioned tornadoes and fires and, and troubles. And it was unclear whether they were speaking of those things metaphorically or literally. That was totally unclear. They didn't highlight plagues exactly, you know, or disease exactly. But when all this stuff happened, 
in 2020, the first four months, people were like, man, these prophets were right. And so these prophets went on tour, right? Because now they're like, look at how legit we are. We said this was going to happen. But what's weird is that like to a person, it seems like all of them predicted that now that April 15th had come, the Passover was going to pass over. And guess what? I'm still listening to see if they're legit or not because their prophecies weren't specific enough for me to really know. So they say April 15th, it's going to pass over. COVID-19 is going to pass over. And then people picked up on this. This is when... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I just did a video <laughs> dealing with this theology of it. Um, COVID-19, I blow that guy, right? <laughs> what's his name? Um, Kenneth Copeland. When Kenneth Copeland came out and he's listening to these other prophets, so he decides to get on the train too. And he's like, I'm blowing. And, and they were listening to the news reports saying that as things heat up, they think that, you know, that the, the virus may die down. And so they said, they're blowing it away. They're blowing it away. Oh, it's, it's ending. It's ending. Now we're going to enter into a time of restoration and rebuilding. And, and then they predicted 2020 is going to be really great in the end. It'll be like a Job scenario. Well, wrong. And so recently I looked up one of these prophets to find out what he was saying now. I was like, what's he saying now? Now that months have gone by and his April 15th prophecy seems like it was bunk or debunked whatever the term is. And uh, so I looked him up and what the, what the guy was saying now was, it did end and only your fear is keeping it alive. So we have to break the spirit of fear because it's really over and it's only fear that's keeping it alive, which feeds into the conspiratorial side of things, but, um, but ultimately is a way to rescue his, his predictions not coming to pass. What I'm saying is 2020 is a fantastic year for false prophecy. I'm super skeptical of people with their prophetic dreams getting online and doing all the things they're doing. I think that... It, that um, I'm open to it being true. But it's way easier to be a fake prophet than a real one. And for every real prophet in scripture, it seems like there's always a bunch of fake ones. All right. April Stafford has a question. How do you answer a friend that says that spiritualism, all new age stuff, tarot, yoga, uh, manifesting, needs to be rescued from the new age and that spiritualism is, a, is pure and is what Jesus practiced? April, I love that you asked this question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's a book, oh, I guess I don't have the physical copy, but it's called Physics of Heaven. And it's, it's, it's something that's been endorsed by Bethel, Bill Johnson, by, by a whole bunch of people from the Bethel community. And part of their, um, their thing is we're going to go into the new age and we're going to rescue out of the new age spiritual practices they do in other cultures, in other religions, in other ungodly Christ-less religions. And we're going to adopt those, put a Jesus stamp on them and do them in, in, in our churches. Here's my theory on this. First off, you don't do that, okay? There is biblical teaching on this. So <clears throat> the, the, the parallel I think we get here are two parallels, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, God is really clear about the people of Israel. He does not want them worshiping him the way that the pagan nations worship their gods. It's very important to him. <clears throat> he's giving him instructions on how he is to be praised in the text. And he's like, don't do for me what they do for their gods. Don't do that. Don't do it that way. Here's how I'm to be worshiped. And he lays it out. In the New Testament, we get this again. So the Israelites, if they were going into like, well, we have to go to the, to the worship of Baal to figure out new spiritual techniques. I mean, this is, this would be against the teaching of scripture, against the heart of God. The next issue though, is in the New Testament. There were those who were, after they'd received Christ, they were borrowing from either Old Testament um, covenants that weren't theirs, 
or they were borrowing from pagan beliefs about special moons and feasts and special practices, asceticism and things like that. And we get this in Colossians. Colossians talks about this. And it, and it basically tells them, this is not how you learned Christ. You didn't learn Jesus this way. Don't go down that road. Don't be borrowing from the, the Greek pagan teachings or uh, acting like you aren't part of the new covenant. You're just part of the old. Like you need to learn Christ and follow him in this way. And so we have Old and New Testament teaching that refutes it. So then I'm left with a question. And I was thinking about this. I'm not kidding, April. Today, I was this morning, I was walking around talking to myself, which I do <laughs> as I'm working through ideas. I mean, I'm not talking to myself like a crazy person, but I work through ideas out loud. And I was trying to figure out what is really going on. Why? Why on earth would a Christian say, I have to learn um, how to pray by looking at Eastern meditation practices. I have to learn how to achieve miracles by looking at what some shaman does in some village. I have to learn how to prophesy based on looking at tarot cards. Why? Why would they do this? I think that the answer is twofold. One, and this is something I have spent some time thinking about. One, they're devoid of the work of the Holy Spirit in the things they're trying to do. Right? Because if the Holy Spirit's inspiring you, you don't need methods. You just share by the leading of the Spirit what God is giving you. You don't need methodologies like that. You don't need a whole structure of how to activate people and cause this and trigger this and, and blah, blah, blah. You, you just have the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't need any of those things. So because the Spirit is not inspiring all these things of prophecy and all these miracles that they're supposedly claiming, because that's not primarily what's happening, what we need to do is find a way to fake it. This, these are strong words. I think these are true words. Because they aren't really, truly having the work of the Spirit, they're finding ways to fake it. And you know who fakes it well? New Age, right? Eastern mysticism, false religions. False religions are based on faking things. And so they're learning how to fake things by copying the practices of these false religions. Not the work of the Spirit. So let's learn how to fake things by copying the forgeries. So it's a, it's a Christian forgery of a forgery that's being propagated when we dig into uh, New Age, tarot, yoga stuff, the spiritual side of yoga stuff, not stretching, and uh, manifesting and things like that. That's my, my opinion about it. Um, uh, AJ, I need you to send me some more questions. <laughs> so I've only got the first, the first five here. So tick-tock, tick-tock. I'll just take one from the live chat here. And um, I hope that helps, by the way, you guys. This stuff is going to be more and more of an issue moving forward, the stuff about the um, New Age and stuff like that. I'm going to do a review of the of the book eventually on the topic. Um, here's, here's one. Nope, nope, just a comment. AJ, where are you, buddy? I need questions or else this doesn't work. Did I miss something? There we go. <laughs> they just came in. <laughs> Thanks, man. I do appreciate it. Um, Meg Ward says, we are proud that the New Testament is based on eyewitness accounts. But how could the gospel writers have known what Jesus said and did while he was alone, like in the desert or in the Garden of Gethsemane? I'm going to put that on screen for you guys. Um, okay, so th th there's, there's like a bunch of questions like this you can ask. Um, how is it that the gospel writers knew what Jesus said when he was alone praying in the garden? How could they have known what... Um, what Pilate said in private with Jesus, right? 
the disciples weren't there, how could they have known the things that happened when they weren't directly around the disciples? And the answers are a, a couple different answers because these are different scenarios. <clears throat> For one, the garden. Let's take your example of the garden. Well, Jesus goes and prays in the garden. He goes like about a stone's throw. Well, he has the 12. Then he takes the, th the three with him further, Peter, James, and John. Then he goes a little further. So he's very far from, you know, uh, nine of the disciples. Three of them are very close, relatively close. He goes like a stone's throw away. And there he's praying. And it says he's crying out in agony. I think Jesus was just loud. I think his prayers were just loud enough to be heard. So he's not with them, like right next to them, but they can hear him. <clears throat> so I don't think the Garden of Gethsemane issue is, is, is a concern. On the other hand, things like, uh, what, did, what about Pilate? Pilate had a conversation with Jesus, and this is recounted in the Gospel of Luke. Well, what's interesting is Luke, so here's what the, the Gospel writers sometimes seem to do. They seem to give us hints at who their eyewitness like sources are when they're not the disciples. Luke, for instance, he mentions that um, that there's people that are part of like Herod's household or that are involved in different capacities in the leadership, right? Roman leadership and stuff that are actually aligned with the Christians. And so Pilate was never alone in the room with just Jesus. He would have had the guards that were there crucifying Christ. Well, here we have one of the guards who after Jesus is crucified, he's like, he really was the son of God. Like there's, he gets saved. Well, then he may be kind of mentioned there in the text to hint at the fact that he might be a source for some of the data they have about a conversation between Jesus and Pilate. So we have that kind of thing. Another example is in Mark. In Mark, Peter is usually there. He's, he's like probably the, uh, the primary eyewitness in the gospel of Mark. But when Peter, you know, denies Christ and he's basically crying off in the distance, he's not there when Jesus is taken from, down from the cross. He's not there when Jesus is put in a tomb and he's not there initially when Jesus is resurrected, when he comes out of the tomb and first appears to the women. You know, who is there is the women. All of a sudden, it's important that Mark names the women. Now, women were around Jesus all the time. There, there's men and women following Christ and, and being around his teachings all the time. But here, when Peter leaves the picture, Mark makes sure to name which witnesses are there. Seeing the, uh, the, the body taken down, seeing where the body is placed in the tomb, coming later and witnessing the empty tomb. So he's including them as witnesses. In other words, there's a lot more witnesses than we've realized uh, in a casual reading. All right. Let's look at number seven. Rosie A says, does the Bible support celebrating birthdays and Christmas? Uh, recovering JW here. Um, <clears throat> Rosie, I actually have, and I'm going to answer your question, so I don't want to leave you hanging, but I actually have longer teachings on this topic. I used to think that Christmas was pagan myself, and I really struggled with it. And it was, you know, and it was when I started getting really serious about following the Lord, and then I'd be like looking at my family, and their Christmas is relatively pagan. I mean, Jesus is a footnote, was a footnote in the in the Christmas of my family. That's the reality of it. And so I'd look at it and I was like, it looks pretty pagan to me. And then people told me it had pagan origins, which made, made me feel like I shouldn't even have anything to do with it. And I thought, I'll just celebrate the birth of Christ every day, man. I'll celebrate his death and resurrection all the time. I don't need Christmas and Easter. So I actually did some more research and found that that wasn't really true. That there is a, there is a secularized Christmas that bothers me, where it's basically Jesus is a footnote. But the idea of celebrating Christmas is not ungodly, and it's I don't think it comes from pagan origins, and I do have videos on that. Um, if you just type Mike Winger Christmas into the search engine, it probably a few videos come up, and you'll find the one you're looking for there. As far as Easter goes, 
Um, it's the same thing as Easter. Uh, Easter is way overblown. They, oh, the, the Easter money is this and that and Ishtar and all these things. And, and I, in reality, I think most of that's just completely untrue. But it's so inflammatory that people run with it. Now, I'm okay. I don't mind ditching any holiday. I'll just throw it out. I'm cool with that. But I don't think it's true is the important thing. So I think celebrating holidays is an option for believers. We can build kind of a case for this in scripture. First off, God actually gave the people holidays, right? He gave them feast days and holidays to celebrate. Second, um, there's a holiday that emerged in between the Old and New Testament and the intertestamental period. And that was about the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. And then in Jesus's time, he seems to be actually attending that holiday. So he's celebrating a holiday that wasn't like dictated by God, but it was consistent with the great work of God that he had done. So in other words, it's not like you're only limited to the holidays the Bible tells you to obey. It just is more about the heart of the event. Is this glorifying to God? Is it focused on the truth of Christ? Um, like Thanksgiving is not a, a biblical holiday, but it's biblical to give thanks to God and to focus on him and be grateful for what he's done. So there's there's a couple elements there that we, we can look at. Um, the, histor- the history of it and the biblical grounding of it. Also birthdays. I did cover this in one of my Jehovah's Witness videos. I honestly don't remember which one. Um, but the bottom line is that that birthdays are are fine if you're not doing it in some kind of proud, arrogant way. But if you want to celebrate another person and encourage them and show them how much you love them, I don't see how that's unbiblical, right? Like, you want to tell your son, like, I love you. I celebrate you and, and what God's doing in your life and... And here's, here's a gift, you know, giving gifts is, was, is not wrong in scripture. There's a couple of events, and this is what Jehovah's Witnesses, the leadership will point out too, is that there's events in the Bible where birthday celebrations are taking place and then bad things happen. So Herod's birthday, boom, God kills him, you know, or, or um, uh, was it Belshazzar, his birthday celebration, and God's like takes him out. But this isn't because it was their birthday. And that's the problem, right? It's not like, because God hates birthdays, he'll kill you for it. Like, no, 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 no. These were ungodly, wicked men. And they were at the height of their folly. And that's when God uh, punishes them to give an example. It's not because it's their birthday. That's, yeah. That's weird, okay? That's weird. Because if that's the case, if we're going to say the examples of birthdays, two you can think of, are bad. And therefore, all birthday celebrations are bad. Well, dogs are usually used in a very negative, bad example in, in the Bible, many more times than birthdays. But I don't know any Jehovah's Witness teaching that dogs are evil and that owning dogs is is, is bad um, because they're just inconsistent here. There is one birthday that's considered pretty special, and that's the celebration of Jesus Christ, right? There is actually a birthday celebration on his day of birth. So that's got to mean at least something. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Hope that helps. I do have more content. Um, online you can find. Uh, Lassie Kleiman says, if I get raptured before the tribulation, will I, from the new place of residence, be able to do something good for my loved ones who were left behind on earth? Um, This is a tough question to answer in one respect, Lassie, because basically we're asking, can the people in heaven have do something for the people on earth? Well, I don't know that what we let me just start with what's clear we don't have any biblical teaching that says they can okay we also have biblical teaching that really forbids like us trying to reach out to the dead after they've died we're just to wait we just wait to see them again there's a great reunion coming and so we're not to be reaching out and that's what happens as soon as you start thinking like "Ooh, the people in heaven can help me and then i'm going to start asking them for help and then it creates you know where um 
saints, uh, praying to saints takes over your prayer life and replaces in many, 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 many instances your prayers to God. So th I think that's a problem. Uh, we also don't have any specific teaching that that they can do anything, that they can do anything. If anything, there seems to be teaching in scripture that after we're dead, our ability to impact the world is gone, right? This is, for instance, the verse I read earlier, this is implied there uh, where Paul says, man, I, I'm going to live on in the flesh because that's how I can benefit you. And he says, but I'd rather depart and be with Christ. Now, if Paul thought he could benefit you greatly while being with Christ, why on earth does he think I should live on in the flesh in order to benefit you? It seems as though your ability to impact this world ends when you die. And then you are in a waiting place in the presence of God, waiting for that final judgment and the resurrection, the new creation. So I think that there's other places too. Ecclesiastes implies this, like after death, you just don't have any more impact. Um, that, that, yeah, you're, you're done impacting the world at the point at which you die. I think that's pretty consistent. Good question. Hotwax93 says, speaking of whether or not we go directly to heaven or hell when we die, what are your thoughts on the comma in Luke 23, 43? A lot of mortalists say it belongs after the word today instead of before. Okay, this may seem like a random question, you guys, but I've actually spent some time on this um, in particular. And let me break it down for anybody who doesn't know. Okay, Luke 23, uh, 23, 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross. He's like, you're going to see me today in paradise. Now, those who, who teach like me, that I'm going to be conscious. There's my body's dead. My body's asleep in the ground, so to speak. That's a euphemism for death. But but I have a conscious awareness, and I'm in the presence of God. Well, I'm going to use this verse to help support my case, right? Jesus says, "Today, <clears throat> you will be with me in paradise." Um, yet the the other people who are going to be against that, they they can't have that. They can't have him with. Jesus in paradise after he dies that day. They think there's like soul sleep or you stop, in some cases, the physicalist would say you just stop existing. So you can't be with anybody anywhere until you're resurrected. And they think that you're just, all you are is a body and a brain. Um, and I would disagree with that position. So they would often reinterpret this to say today, uh, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. And they'll make a big deal about this. Ah, so Jesus was just saying, I'm telling you today. Truly, I say to you today. Like, which Jesus doesn't ever do. Actually, if you study all of well, when Jesus says things like today. Um, no, it just doesn't happen. So I looked up a bunch of translations. I mean, a host of translations. And it's pretty much nobody. Nobody translates it with the comma after the word today. And this is because now in the Greek, there are there are no commas. Let me give me show you guys just so you know what what you're looking at. Um, even though this won't make sense. I just want you to understand. Um, I'm gonna find you the Greek. This is perhaps a clumsy way to do it. But in the Greek, there there isn't gonna be a comma there, right? The the way that the word is understood is differently. It's represented in English with a comma. That's that's important. But in Greek, which I thought I had a Greek uh, translation like right there, but apparently not. Okay, verse 43. Let me make it bigger for you. Ah, okay. This is the Greek. This is the Greek. Um, now, the, the comma there, again, is 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 a English supplied, even just like the periods and stuff like that. But the, the Greek, it's it doesn't work that way. 
the Greek, what they have to do is they have to look at the grammar of this word and the grammar of that word, and you'll look at endings of words, and you'll and you'll you'll see the see the the um, the omega that's there. It looks like a W. You'll you'll look. That's you know say he's saying in that word there. Lego. You have to tie these endings together. This is this is what you have to do in order to understand the Greek. Um, all I'm saying getting my clumsy representation of Greek here is to say this. There are indications in Greek that sometimes we we translate as commas in English, right? There's a different way of finding that same thing in the Greek. The implication is that the word is being used the way you normally understand it. Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Today is the time indicator of when the guy's going to be with Jesus in paradise. So that's how we should interpret that. That's how almost every translation does it. Those who try to say they move the comma, they don't understand the language. They just move the comma and get all excited about it because, ha ha, gotcha. And, um, and yeah, when you look up Jesus's use, another thing you can do is look up how Jesus uses the word today and do a survey of every time Jesus uses the word today. And you'll see that he's very consistently using it to refer to the day uh, and not today I'm telling you. That's not generally what he's talking about. All right, the next question we have is from Proverbs 17, 11. And that's not where the question is. That, that's like the name. That's the YouTube name. Uh, Mike, my entire family are Pentecostal. They say I'm demon-possessed and a male chauvinist because I believe Paul's teachings on women. I don't consider them saved. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm qualified to enter into this family dispute. <laughs> um Let's just let me talk about the issues and not your family for a second. Okay, it's obviously they think you're a chauvinist because you believe in Paul's teachings on women. I don't know what you think of Paul's teachings on women, but let's suppose you take an, a a, a um, complementarian view, which which I do, and you think that there are different different roles, although totally equal, equality in Christ for men and women, but different roles within the body of Christ for men and women, just like there's different roles in marriage and in parenting that naturally fall to men and women, and that God. Just that leadership of a pastoral nature, like being the pastor of the church, that that is a, a role that God wants for men, for his own purposes. This isn't about men being better. And that's not chauvinism. That's actually just saying, hey, I think God gave us rules and we should follow those rules because he's God and then he's not going to bow to people getting triggered. Okay, but then there's other, there's other chauvinists, and I have heard chauvinist usage of Paul. And I don't know where you stand on all that stuff. But if you're if you're just holding to, I think, a complementarian view there's nothing chauvinist about that you're just trying to obey the rules that god's given if your family says you're demon possessed as a result if that's the only reason then that's a problem but let's be real family situations are complicated and i have no idea why your family's really saying this about you and it might be that you have other issues going on and you're highlighting this because you i'm just being honest with you you defend this so you're highlighting this but there's all these other things that they would say but what about this 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 and i can't comment on all that or it's possible that your family is um, unable to defend. You're defending scripture truthfully. You're presenting it rightly. And they have no defense. So they just call you demon possessed because they're just being irrational and hateful. I don't have any way of knowing what's really going on there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. And, and you guys, listen, when, when we get comments that people often want me to weigh in on their lives and the situation they have going on. But here's what I've learned as a pastor. I don't know your situation until I've sat with you for like an hour and just listened and just asked questions and let you talk. And then maybe I have wisdom and discernment to understand your scenario better. But I have to ask questions. I have to let you explain things. So it's just not wise for me to weigh in with 
life-changing advice on things I don't really understand about your particular situation, which is why oftentimes if you're sending messages, we there's not a whole lot I can do when it comes to personal counseling. So often, I'm encouraging people, you know, I want to give biblical answers, but with personal counseling, I, and I do every week, there's a few that we are, we'll, we'll respond to and try to get in with. But, but I'm often saying, you know, what you need to find is a local, and, and even, even two is better than one, but a local godly believer who you can be completely honest with. You don't spin. You don't try to give them the answers. You give them the, 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 uh, the information, and then you ask them for their help and their biblical advice. And this has got to be personal, right? On the phone or eye to eye or mask to mask or whatever you got to do. Um, that's so, so important. And if you want real counsel and if you want your counselors to help you, you got to be totally open and real with them where you tell them the truth and you're not guiding their their conclusions. Because there are those who go to pastors and they learn by going pastor to pastor. If I leave out this piece of the story, then I'll get the advice I want. And of course, that person does get the advice they want and they deserve it. <laughs> so, um, All right, that's all I got to say about that. Dilly Guy says, Hi, Mike, have you seen the Chosen series and what's your view on it? I watched for the first time a couple days ago, I watched the first episode of The Chosen and there was a lot to like about it. And there was, a, but I realized that there's one principle I, had, I have in my mind, which is I actually know the Bible and I don't think The Chosen is my Bible. And if I think that this is an, an artistic interpretation and representation, then I can enjoy it very much. And I can look at it and I can go, oh, wow, this is really provoking different thoughts. What I don't want to do is think that this is a paraphrase of the Bible or this is a representation of the truth of what happened in the first century. This is not that. And I don't think that the makers would think it is either. The, the chosen involves fabricating things, putting them into the lips of the apostles and Jesus, but trying to do so, and this is the important part, trying to do so from a place of careful study of the scripture and from a place of understanding the history of the time. So that, you know, in order to give what we we think, it, it's imagine this, it's like a preacher or a commentator giving their opinions about the Bible, but in the form of a drama. That's what The Chosen is. I'm not sure uh, how much of it I'll be able to watch. I may just continue watching the whole thing. I'm very curious to see where they go with things. I, I loved that in the first episode, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, um, Nicodemus, sorry, Nicodemus is, is, uh, is, is unpacked in a really neat way. Now, is that real about Nicodemus? Did he try to cast the demon out of somebody and fail and Jesus succeeded? Was he really doubting himself and then kind of like just blustering in public to try to make it, you know, try to firm up his resolve? Um, I, I don't know. No, I mean, we don't have any evidence to think that's the case. What it does, though, is it creates a understanding of, say, one of these guys that might help you um, view their story differently in the Bible. So there's a danger and there's a there's a wonderful thing and a danger in it as well. What I'm super curious to find out is this. Will there be bad theology smuggled into the into the um, into the drama that is the chosen? And I don't think they intend to, but maybe I'll watch more <laughs> and look for that. I didn't see anything particularly tough. There is some stuff that historically doesn't really work, like um, the relationships of, between men and women and the whole like the bar scenes and that kind of thing, I think probably are not very realistic historically. Um, Peter fishing on the Sabbath, there is there is actually evidence in history that especially in more of the rural towns, you know, fishermen, that kind of thing, 
that they were more likely to dis discard some of the normal rules that the Pharisees were real strict about. And so th there is some evidence that, that that kind of thing may have happened. Do we know Peter did it? No, we don't. But we also know Peter was ashamed of himself. So they're creating something for him to be ashamed of so that they could fill in that story. So yeah, just take it as drama um, and not authoritative at all. And we'll see. I feel like it's probably a good thing. 12. Jesse Jack says, I was reading Galatians and got confused by Galatians 3.23. I know that we are saved by our faith and not by the law, but what does it mean to be confined to and imprisoned by the law? Well, let's look at the passage and hopefully I will have something helpful to share with you on that, Jesse. Here we are. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay. I see what your, your question is about here. Um, what does it mean that we were captive under the law? Well, the, the law, imprisoned even, is a system of, of rules. And so in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a guardian, like a tutor or a teacher that's, that's saying, I'm going to give you all these rules. Like in Paul's analogy, it's like a, a young child who has a nanny. Let's put it, well, say a nanny instead of a guardian here. And the nanny has like oppressive control of the child. I mean, if the child had been an adult and the nanny was giving all these rules to the child, we would see that as pretty oppressive. But we understand it's a child. Okay, you can't go there. You can't go there. Go wash your hands. Don't eat that. Eat this. No, we're not, you know, playtime's over. Now we're going to do this. All those rules are there for good reasons. And so all the Old Testament laws are there for good reasons. But maybe the reason why there's like a negative connotation to being held captive under the law and imprisoned, which is more than just like nanny language, is because the, the law doesn't just have rules. It has consequences. And now these consequences are good in the sense that they're morally right, but they're bad in the sense that they hurt me, right? That they're not morally bad. They're like, ouch, that's tough. So um, a speeding ticket's like this. A speeding ticket is a rule. Okay, but if I violate the speed limit, I get the ticket and now I have to pay the consequence. That consequence under the law is death. You violate the law, you you die. And so this is like captivity and imprisonment and this is, this is the nature of mankind. I've sinned against God. I will stand before God. I will be judged by God. That's pretty extreme. So I, I think that um, the answer to your question, make sure I'm getting your question right. I know we're saved by our faith and not the law, but what does it mean to be confined and imprisoned by the law? It means that you, 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 uh, you're still in your sin. You're still being aware of sin and judgment and the penalty that's coming. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you realize you've been set free because he obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. Not just because you have no rules for your life now, but he fulfilled it. You are righteous now as Christ is righteous. You are forgiven as he purchased your forgiveness. You're alive because he rose from the dead. And so we're no longer under that law of sin and death. Instead, we're uh, believe and live. All right, let's see. Connor Robinson. I'm going to go I'm going to go to lightning round now because I'm going to run out of time. Connor Robinson says, if Jesus was raised back to life as a human with a body, not a spiritual being, then how did he suddenly appear in the locked room with the disciples? Um, I think that Jesus was raised with a glorified body and we will be too. And so 1 Corinthians 15, short answer, 1 Corinthians 15 outlines this and it suggests that, just teaches that we will, 
we will not just be raised, but we'll be raised with an incorruptible body, a body that's fit for the heavens, that's fit for eternity. So it's your body that's raised or whatever particles remain of your body. I mean, the Lord's going to, it seems, use whatever's left in part of the reconstitution. But it's also like a recreation. It's, it's a new thing that's happening. So it's a glorified body. So it's still a human body, but it's a glorified body. And that would be what we what we see with Jesus Christ. I think that his, and now some would say he didn't really suddenly appear in a locked room. Like they were just surprised. Oh, how'd you get here? I think he just appeared. Okay, but I think he can do that because he's in a glorified body. But as, but after he does that, it's in that exact environment. They're in a locked room. He comes in and he goes, now touch me, see it's me. And he calls the, the imprints of the nails. He says, these are the, the nails that were on me on the cross. Meaning it's the same hand, same nail holes. So it's a glorified body, but it's still a body. Danita Morin says, um, Hi, Pastor Mike. I'd love to know your thoughts on what it means to pray in Jesus' name, such as John 16, 24. Thank you so much for your ministry. Uh, this is something I've thought about myself some. John 16, 24. Let's take a look at that first. And and you're welcome for my ministry. Sorry. I'm like on mission mode to answer your question. So I like didn't even acknowledge that. But thank you, Danita. Um, it means the world to me that so many people their lives are being impacted by the teaching of scripture. Wow. Uh, John 16, 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So until now, they were praying to God. Um, and, and, and this connects to what I was dealing with in the temple stuff in the Mark series recently. Uh, the, the temple is kind of the access point to God in Judaism. It's going to be destroyed. It's being replaced by the praying community, the believers who are the temple of the spirit, who are joined together through Christ, and we pray in his name. And so just as the temple is kind of like the access point, so praying in Jesus's name conceptually is the way in which I access God. Jesus is my mediator. My prayers are heard not because of my goodness, not because of my holiness, but because of Christ and how he stands and intercedes ever for me, uh, meaning that my prayers are uh, are always received by God through Christ on the condition of his goodness and his his sacrifice. I think it brings up the next question. So when I say I'm praying in Jesus' name, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying and my prayers are heard because of Jesus and his goodness and his works and I'm just trusting in him. So my prayers are by faith in that sense. But do I have to actually say in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer? Uh, no, 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 no. This isn't about using the phrase in Jesus' name. But you can if you want. And I want to, okay? I like praying in Jesus' name. I don't require anyone else to do it. They can just say, amen, amen. And I sometimes do that. I just like praying in Jesus' name because it really is a vibrant, it's not vain repetition to me. It's a vibrant reminder that my prayers are coming to God through the work of Christ that I can be heard. So yeah, hope that helps. Um, Dimitar Brot, uh, Bratov, I'm sorry if I'm probably butchering your name says, if a man wants to be water baptized, do you need a specific level of understanding of the Bible and Christianity or just the desire and a simple understanding of baptism is important? Just a simple, simple understanding is important. And the example is this. In scripture, uh, Dimitar, in scripture, people just get baptized right away. They don't, they don't go through like discipleship classes. They just, when they trust in Christ, they get baptized. Now, they also repented. Like, they, you know, there was a recognition as the gospel went out that you were turning from one life to another and you were trusting in Jesus Christ. And if there is that awareness, you know, I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ and I turn from my life of doing my thing to acknowledging and living under his lordship, you know, that, that sort of thing, then get baptized, go for it. You don't need, you don't need all this other stuff. You just don't. 
um, not biblically. Now, it wasn't too long in church history before they started creating like basically like schools or education that you had to have before you could get baptized. And this does continue to happen. And part of the fear is that we'll have like false converts and things like that. And I just want to follow the example we have in the New Testament, and that is of immediate baptism. Trippy Penguin says, and oh, by the way, if you have, if anybody has not been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus and it's been 20 years and you're embarrassed, go get baptized. You should be embarrassed that you're, you're going to do another year <laughs> without it. Uh, Trippy Penguin, how do you, how do I renew my love for God when he seems common, when he seems commonplace? Oh, hmm. Um, so I know what you mean here, Trippy Penguin. You don't mean God is commonplace. You mean your awareness of the truths of Christianity feel like they've lost their vitality. It's like, it's like, you know, this, this thing that you once saw in color, it's like you're now seeing it in black and white. Um, the, the formula for going back to your first love is in Ephesians, not Ephesians, but in the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. So in Revelation 2 and 3, we have letters to the churches. Read the letter to the church in Ephesus and recognize this. He says a few things to them that I'm going to encourage you with and anybody who feels this way. He says, remember the first works. Remember the first works. Remember the height from which you've fallen. So the first thing he's going to do is to stop and think about what it was like when the truths of Christ were vibrant and heart-filling and life-giving, just that you're, you were overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus Christ. That worship, all it took was a, a song's playing and you're ready to worship, you know? Remember that. Like, actually remember that and ask yourself, like, what was my mindset back then? What was I so excited about? Because those same things are true now. Then he also tells them to remember the first works, to do, go back to their first works and do those things. So I would say go back to the first things you did in response to the love of Christ in your life. Go back to the initial things you did when you first got saved that were just out of love for the Lord and go back to and do those things. You may be busy about a lot of ministry and service, but you might not be busy about those first things. So this is going to be a lot of personal reflection. That's what I'd recommend. Mimi says, I have left a word of faith church and I'm actively seeking a, speaking about the false doctrine, but it is, it is affecting my relationship with my sister. What should I do? Sadly, doctrine does divide. Um, and it may divide your in your relationship with your sister. Mimi, I, I think that... Um, Here's my quick encouragement to you, Mimi. Not knowing your whole situation, here's some encouraging things that I, I think won't be destructive to you. <laughs> Hopefully will be helpful. I would say, um, make sure that when you're speaking to your sister, that you're not talking as though she's one of the false prophets. Unless she is. <laughs> but you're speaking to your sister. It's invitational. You're asking, you're trying to bring her out of something. You're not just condemning something in her eyes, but you're trying to get her out of it. That mentality of being invitational will change everything about the way you talk to her. Make sure that you're still loving to her and kind to her and gracious to her and all those things. So that if if she's upset with you, cuts you out, it's not because of anything you've actually done wrong. That would be, that would be an encouragement. Another thing is to just recognize as, as passionate as you are about how messed up these, this group is, you used to be part of it. And ask yourself, what would have helped me come out of it when I was entrenched? What did help me? How can I give others that kind of help? What made me open? Why was I even interested in listening to someone who might say that something was wrong with this group? And remember that. Uh, Lungil Zandi says, 
Um, hi, Pastor Mike. How do we draw the line between having between wrestling with God and having vain repetitions in our prayers? Like how long is appropriate to pray for something? Thanks. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with repetition in prayer. What's wrong is vain repetition or thinking you'll be heard because of the number of your words. So we have this balance in Christianity. I'm not going to suggest that I fully know how to work through it, but I, but I recognize that it's here. And it's the balance between knowing that God's actually hearing me right now, that every word is being heard, and also knowing that I'm, so I don't need to just keep saying it over and over and over and over again, but also knowing that I am to be persistent in prayer, I am to be continual in prayer. So my answer to this is twofold. Uh, one, we probably all should be praying more. I think this is just kind of like a rule of life, like pray more is like always good advice to people, most people anyway. Um, but, but don't say it when it's vain. If saying it again is moving towards vain or empty words, stop. Just stop. Like you're like, that's all I got, man. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not going to just keep talking, you know, as though as though you'll be heard because of my many words. Um, and and then on the other end, that doesn't mean that you can't continue praying about other things. It's not like, you know, you, you prayed about that thing. Know that God hears you. Continue praying about it. Maybe next time you sit down and pray, maybe tomorrow you, you bring it up again. But move on to another topic that you can speak about with the Lord without vain repetition. So yeah, I'd rather you pray less than pray with vain repetition because vain repetition is actually an insult uh, to the Lord. 19, almost done. Jared Garrity says, thank you, Mike, for your ministry. I'm an aspiring pastor. I hope to be the shepherd of a church one day. Until then, what is good to do? How can I prepare myself for better pastorship? Well, um, Jared, there's a million things you can do. Uh, the number one issue for pastors is going to be personal character and godliness in your own life. And so that's, I mean, the number one thing you can do is just be walking in integrity, being sensitive to the work of the Spirit to bring, bring you rebuke or correction and be following what the teachings of Scripture are to memorize and learn, really. The command in the epistles, uh, the pastoral epistles, especially about the character traits of a leader about being gentle, about being able to correct others, uh, about being able to teach, about being uh, blameless and above reproach and all that stuff. So those are number one things, character. Um, also, you're going to want to know the word of God, study it, learn it, know it well. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to school, but it does mean that you, you honestly, Jared, biggest issue that I encounter with leaders, with pastors, um, and they tell me all the time, here's what I get all the time. Mike, I really love the stuff you're doing, man. You do these really in-depth studies, man. But I just, ugh, I'm just too lazy to study that much. And part of me is like, like, I get it. Not everyone's called to do what I'm doing. But I do know that laziness will be a massive detriment to your teaching ministry and your ability to minister to your audiences. Um, so yeah, other than that, I just say, uh, don't only do pastoral ministry. Here's my last encouragement for you, Jared. Don't only do pastoral ministry. Just do anything you can to serve the Lord. Don't think I'm I'm above that. No, no. Serve the Lord in any way you can. Go meet needs and just keep meeting needs. And if it's in, if it's God's plan, it may take time, but you will have those opportunities according to His will and His plan. So I just say, serve in any way you can. Serve humbly. Be an example to the believers. And I pray the Lord guides and directs you. It's a long and, and wonderful and difficult journey. And also be open. Some of you guys out there, you're, you're thinking um, ministry is is all, you know, there's pastor. That's kind of the only ministry there is. There's a million ways to serve the Lord. And for some people out there, it won't be being a pastor. It'll be something else. It won't be teaching in the pulpit on Sunday morning. It'll be something else. And that's fine. But to be honest, I'm doing something else. This is, this is not 
normal what I do. <laughs> and, uh, and yet it perfectly fits my gifts and it, and, and there's an opportunity to do it and there's a need for it. And so, yeah. Ben Johnston, last question says, how do I speak to a pastor who tends to use feel good phrases like you are enough and Jesus came to bring a piece of heaven to earth. I find these phrases unbiblical. Ben, I agree with you. Um, these phrases often hide bad theology. Um, you are enough. I mean, I can agree with that. I can also disagree with that. I'm enough, meaning that um, that it's his strength in me and not me. Okay. I'm enough, meaning that it's I'm strong. I'm strong and I can do it and, and I don't need to improve. No, that's wrong. So these, these phrases are too generic and they, they create an avenue, especially if they become the slogans that become like the theology of the church. They create an avenue for all kinds of weird teachings. Jesus came to bring a piece of heaven to earth. I'm, I'm assuming with that phrase that what you have going on here is um, is the Bethel influence in your guys' fellowship. That's probably what is happening there. Um, heaven doesn't have pieces. <laughs> right? The, the, you, I would start by saying, if, if I was to talk to the pastor, I would say, you use the phrase, you're enough. Help me understand what you mean by this. However, these guys, as much as they're very loving and very compassionate, they're often, their radar is set that if anyone disagrees, their, their alarms go off and they can smell it coming from a mile away. And so I would approach them as graciously as possible, say, Pastor, I have some concerns and just know this, the hair on the back of his neck is standing up. He's already trying to think of how to handle you. Most likely just, you're thinking, Mike, you're judging a lot based on these two phrases this pastor says. I'm just going to say, if it's like the guys I've dealt with, then you're going to have a very hard time trying to bring anything in the realm of correction. He's more interested in handling you than he is in handling the issues. And so when you present yourself, Ben, to this guy, his pastor, as someone who's already being handled, hey, pastor, I love you. I support you. You're kind of trying to use words to say, I don't need to be handled. I want us to talk about the issues. Um, you might, might get through and ask him to define what does it mean that you're enough? What does it not mean? And just give him real definitions. Jesus came to bring peace of heaven, a piece of heaven on earth. What does that mean? And what does it not mean? And then you want to push for this. Does the congregation understand what it doesn't mean? And God be with you. Because <laughs> I think those are the kind of conversations that can be kind of tough. Um, uh, honestly, maybe one of the better things to do even is to find uh, a book or resource that shows a pastor who's falling into this, this realm of wishy-washiness. Find a book or resource that, that chronicles somebody else's journey out of that kind of wishy-washiness. And then give that to the guy and say, you know, you know, I've been praying. I really think this is something wonderful I should give you. And here you go. And then maybe that would help them out. Um, Sometimes uh, pastors can be the easiest people to talk to or the hardest people to talk to, and it's kind of up to them. All right, Lord give you wisdom, Ben. Hey, you guys, um, I have no I have no cat to show you today. Sorry, she's off sleeping somewhere else. And um, I want to recommend my videos on Christmas, if you guys are interested in that topic. Just type Mike Winger Christmas. I've got like three or four videos on the topic. They're not the same. None of them are the same. And some are dealing with Christmas carols, songs, understanding the theology behind them, the good and the bad. Some are dealing with the history of it and that sort of thing. That's something you can check up and follow up on. Here they tell me that it's good to recommend other videos as I'm ending one. So you have something to do next. Although 
you might just want to go get some food instead, which is also a good idea. All right, Lord bless you. I will be um, with you again on Monday at 1 p.m. I might have a video. In the meantime, we'll see if I have the time to, to do that. And we'll continue the Mark series then. Take care.